Hey guys, welcome to the Grad Life Game Changers podcast. This is the podcast where we interview those that have had exceptional careers and became public figures in their particular discipline. Our guest today certainly falls into this category. A former Leinster, Ireland, British and Irish Lions rugby player who used his profile to elevate social causes deeply cared about, such as helping relations in Northern Ireland. Hugo McNeil, it's an absolute privilege to have you on the show. I'm oh, delighted to be on. Just very much enjoy it. I very much enjoyed your recent one on Barcelona with Simon Cooper, which was uh, really interesting. Fantastic. That's great feedback to get. Uh, to kick it off, let's start with your incredibly decorated career as a rugby player. You played for Leinster, Ireland, the British and Irish Lions and the Barbarians. Did you always believe you would go on to achieve such great things or did this just happen? No, no. I mean, you always you always dream that you'll play for Ireland, but uh, you, you don't know what it's how long it's going to take or how it's going to take. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I went up through the school system and obviously the Leinster school system was very strong as was back then as it is now is and uh played with black rock and then went on to trinity and uh then you know was lucky was in the irish school side then the irish university side and then got into the irish team fortunately in 1981 and had eight great years in the in the t- in, in, in the team there it was uh, was really great and we managed to win a few a few titles as well which was which was which was nice so it was it was you know it was a fantastic uh, dream come true for me how would you summarize playing in the amateur era yeah it's 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 kind of interesting um and you can have a lot of interesting debates about it i mean it was it was it was it was, it was fantastic on one level now if i if i look at the professional game sometimes people say to you oh aren't you really sorry that you didn't play in the professional in the professional era and i said there's two things i'd love to have done i'd love to have trained like an athlete i'd love to play for leinster in the european cup uh, i think that's just fantastic and they, they continue to sort of re- redefine that whole, that whole experience. And I'd like to have trained like an athlete, you know, stretching the phys- the, the conditioning, um, uh, the weights and, and that. But I, I thought it, was, it, was, it was actually nice in a way having two lives. I mean, we were able to play and win international championships, go on tour with the British and Irish Lions, and yet then have another life as well. Uh, and I have such sympathy and admiration for a lot of the guys now who are, you know, who are, who are, who are professional players. You know, when we, when we played, you had to get something else. You had to have something else to do. And, and now when I look back and I meet my teammates, um, and I, all of them have, you know, gone on to do different things, different jobs, different careers, different different things. Uh, we all wish we had, uh, you know, scored more tries, won more games, but everybody looks back with kind of fondness. And I suppose the challenge for a lot of the guys now is that, you know, trying to create, when you when you finish playing, you know, international rugby uh, or, or, or provincial rugby for Leinster or one of the other, provinces what's what's your life after that and i think it's it's really it's really challenging because you've been a professional but at the same time when your peers have been kind of going through a you know job and getting qualifications and various things and i read something recently that uh in, in the uk in england like 67 percent of, of players professional players have to deal with some kind of uh, mental health issues after and i've kind of a lot of uh, you know a lot of sympathy i had a, what, was a guy a relative actually uncle brian o'driscoll it's called john o'driscoll who played in the irish team back when i played and he he uh was was a british and irish lion as well he was also he was, he was also a consultant dermatologist in manchester hospital so in addition to what's my point in addition to you know playing great rugby you know at the pinnacle of his career during his working week so people wanted to see him saying can i get your opinion on this i value your judgment we really need to know what you think about this and so in a sense he had the sort of two lives um and so when he finished playing the rugby and he he missed it he missed it he missed it hugely uh, but he had the sort of a full-time job a full-time career which was enabled him to sort of express all his talents at the same time and i think rugby is at the moment 
still in that kind of transition phase is working out the full model of not just what you do as a professional player from when you're 20 to 30 to 35, but what you do in your downtime during that period to enable you to do something um, you know, after that, because your big fear is that people would end up presenting rugby or it was, it's don't have, don't, don't have an option. And I think, you know, it's, it's great to see some of the, I mean, the unions are now much more, are very focused on this. They, there's, you know, professional you know, organizations trying to help and support, but it's, it's hard if you're a full-time professional rugby player playing for Leinster or Ireland or Munster um, to try and then transition into something afterwards is, is a challenge you know i really wish that wish them well and it's, it's great to see when when you know people are people are succeeding in that this is a topic that's interested me quite a lot recently because the english footballer marcus rashford has come in for a lot of criticism with his form on the football pitch because he's done yeah. so much good stuff off it in helping yeah. bring them um, free free meals to yeah. uh, underprivileged kids in the uk but some parts of the football media are criticizing him saying he's taken his eye off the ball so to speak that he's um he's now become slightly distracted and he's not as focused on the game as he used to be in and you hear the real kind of old school type athletes like Roy Keane who just says I, I don't think footballers should have commercial interests when they're playing football they should be 100% dedicated and focused on the game and then you hear the kind of more people from the modern era like Gary Neville say oh I think it's it's good for people to have businesses outside of football but, and then Roy King would disagree with that, say, no, it, it takes away from their focus and they need to be utterly committed 100% to life on the pitch. Do you think with people taking on other interests outside the sport, it could, even though it's, it's definitely healthy from a mental health perspective, but that sort of mm. pure 100% dedication and focus mm. that you could get when that's your only interest and that's all you care about, could be compromised by taking on interests off the pitch? Yeah, I think it's a very good question because if I go to the RDS and I'm watching Leinster and I, I want to feel that, that, that or Home Park watching Munster or, or whatever, I want to feel that the sort of the players that I'm supporting, that I'm paying to watch and um, my kids are, you know, getting the, the colours for are actually full-time committed. So it is it is a sort of a balance that you have to have to have to have to strike. I think the Marcus Rashford one was interesting. I don't know how much, I don't want to be amateur psychologist, but his body language and confidence, you know, following the sort of the, you know, the penalty shootout in the Euros sort of last year, which is, which is the most unbelievably cruel thing in any sport to decide a game because so much of it is a lottery if the goalkeeper decides to dive over a certain way or if he stands in the middle and you kick it down the middle. It's, it's, so, it's so random, but, but I don't want to get into amateur psychology about this. So I think it is, it is a balance that you have to, you have to strike. But when I, if I look at, you know, that statistic, 67% of people have mental health issues when they finish. A lot of rugby players, when they finish or just end up resenting, my fear is they'll end up resenting the game because they come out and they meet their friends from school or, you know, uh, and they just kind of see their friends are way ahead or have so many more options or uh, are much more, are much more engaged. It, it, there's got to be a, a sort of a, a sort of a balance. And I think there's a duty of care in a sense to those who are running sports. Uh, like rugby and, and other sports as well, which demand a huge amount of time. There's a duty of care to to look after, in a sense, the players. So when they're, they're just not treating them as players, and when they're finished, they're kind of dispensable because they're you know they're also they're also pe people. And um, I, th I think there's a balance. I think the point you make is you know is is right. And what Roy Keane may say, look, it's just they'll just get paid in the Premiership, they get paid so much money, they don't need to worry about other things. But that again itself may may not be entirely true. Um, 
but it's it's a it's a delicate it's a delicate balance. But I've I've certainly thinking trying to strike that balance is is you know is is where I think we should get to. Yeah, it's it's a weird one because I think we sort of idolize sporting figures so much around the world, and when we see like everybody became so uh, hooked on that Michael Jordan documentary that came out about yeah. you know, during lockdown of a year ago. And, what just struck everyone was just how utterly focused he was and how he was just yeah. a winner yeah. and he was there yeah. to win and he didn't care if he annoyed people, he didn't care if it, if what sort of, how it impacted his relationships. He was there to be yeah. the greatest basketball player of all time. And yeah. we admire that and we love seeing that in sporting figures and that's what really captures us. But at the same time, it's like, it's not a healthy way to be. Um, like yeah. you, you saw, you got a, a brief in, insight into the impact it had on him and it had a, and it had enough on some of his teammates where he teared up at one point where he was asked, like, do you have any regrets? And he, he didn't say he had regrets, but he, I, I don't know if you remember the scene, but he kind of, he hinted yeah. at the fact that he maybe he pushed people too hard and, but that was yeah. all he was going to give away. And, and it's, it's amazing for us to watch and it's riveting TV, yeah. but it's, it's, it's a tough one as to, to work out how you do strike that balance because it's, it's why we love sport. It's, it's, they, they are seen as these godlike figures that, that have this mentality that's that a lot of us can't you you can't because you play at the, at the top of your sport but a lot of us mere mortals can't really relate to yeah i think it's true it was a fantastic series it was just yeah. it was just absolutely absolutely gripping um and uh yeah it is it is that balance i mean michael jordan in a sense is not just a national figure an international figure is a global figure and uh, so it's it's uh, it's very difficult for him to be you know, you know maybe achieving sort of kind of balance but he's got such excellence in, in what he does that it's it's fantastic I and mean, people will always speak of him um but i think it's it's just it's it's you know coming back to the uh, you, you know the sort of the rugby and sort of the balance and that those issues are around mental health and so I, I think we have a duty of care to to the uh you know to players to try and find in some way a sort of a balance so that life after rugby or life after soccer or like a GAA or whatever or whatever the sports is you, you, you know you prepare people it's it, it, it isn't to kind of dilute them you know you're very very keen and focused that they're going to do you know everything they can for to reach excellence of their sport um but on the other hand if there's a, if there's something that can help them in a time effective way prepare for life after sport then i think that's 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 really what the sort of the holy grail of that that, that we should that, uh, we should be getting to but that's you know, I realized that that's quite difficult. The amateur era, which you played in, is often kind of seen as, as the glory days of rugby because it sort of encapsulated everything that was great about the sport. The fact that you go out for a pint with the people you played against that, that evening. Do you think any element of that could be incorporated into modern rugby? Or do you think because of the professional era, because these guys are just treated like elite level athletes, that what you experienced in the amateur era needs to be appreciated and respected, but also be seen that that was of a certain time and now the game's moved on. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, I think, I mean, it was a different time, but would I rather have been playing in front of 200 people watching Leinster or 55,000 people watching Leinster and us competing with the best teams in Europe? I think that's, that's, that's an easy one to answer. I think, uh, you know, I mean, I think the amateur era was, 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 you know, it was very interesting, but I think it's, I don't think anyone would, it wouldn't be advocating as a Leinster supporter that you kind of go back, you know, you, you go back, you go back to that. It's the game has moved on. There's, there's facilities for those who want to play amateur or social rugby or social sport, whatever, hockey, football, whatever, you, you can do that. And then we can all then enjoy the, you know, the elite level sport as well. Um, so I, I, I'm not, 
in the, you know, you know, going to the stage that it's saying, oh, it's it's we should move back to where we where we were. It's just too, you know, to to, to acknowledge there's there's room to accommodate. But while at the same time, I don't think I'd give up the, you know, the, the fun and the interest that say Leinster have given over the over the years and, and Munster and the other and the other teams in the province, you know, going around all Europe, um, being competitive to win European Cups. That's phenomenal. And that was, you know, we'd never have envisaged that, you know, in our day and we wouldn't want to, you know, go back uh, from that. And, uh, you know, we're just lucky in Ireland that, that we have teams and just talking about rugby, but, the, you know, who are competitive. I mean, every year we look at, you know, we, one of the Irish teams would be competitive to win the European Cup. If you're in Scotland, if you're in Wales, if you're in Italy, you, you certainly couldn't, you couldn't say that. And, uh, um, so I don't think that's something that would 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 would, would give up. So there's there's ways to ways ways to accommodate, but I think the excellence of the the big provincial teams is is fantastic. Do you have any opinion on how the Irish national rugby team can take the next step to go that one better in the World Cup? And and in your opinion, what does sort of success look like for Irish rugby as a whole over the next two to three years? Well, I think being contenders for the championship. Um, and you know, hopefully a Grand Slam. I mean, we've shown that we can, you know, do that. I think where uh, where we need to go is to move on. We got to say when we won the Grand Slam a few years ago, people sort of figured out our game in a sense, the sort of pick and drive, um, the box kicking, um, the taking the ball up the middle, and people sort of figured that out and, and know how to counter it. I think what's been interesting and I think it's probably been understood is exactly that point that needs to be taken on to the next level, needs to have a very coherent back play that will go through phase after phase that will just create space, look for the opportunities to create space rather than just the kind of physicality of, you know, of, of, of the collisions. And I think, you know, what's, what's, been, what's been good in the Irish team recently, as we've seen sort of, sort of in through the through the autumn internationals, some part of last season, we've seen taking them taking the next step, and that's why I think it's very exciting. And I think, you know, I think it's a very good coaching and senior leadership team you have in place. I mean, someone like Andy Farrell, who's you know got no ego, who was a rugby league you know icon, but he was had limited experience in rugby union, and the fact that he brings in the likes of Mike Cat, like you know, he brings in you know Paul O'Connell. You know, I would not like to. Is there any Irish rugby player of the last 10 years who would like to come back off the pitch and face Paul O'Connell looking at him and say, you know, I haven't actually sort of given everything that I can. I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't like and I'm sure there isn't anything. So I think it's, it's I think it's quite an exciting time for, for, for Irish rugby. I think we do need to develop the back play, the back of the game, but I think we've got the players to do it. Um, and then, of course, the leadership of John Sexton is, you know, you know, that he could play as long as he, he can play, and that we that we get a replacement, but we need to get a replacement. It's going to be it's going to be a crucial issue, I think, in the development of the Irish team over the next over the next couple of years. But I think it's it's really this developing the back play, a coherent a coherent back play that creates space that goes through the phases um, and doesn't just rely on the kind of collisions because people have figured out that. You know the pick and drive, the CJ standard, the dry and like Burlong. You know, they figured out our, our game and our box kicking. And it's, what's exciting is that we now react to that and look to and are looking to expand it. What was your proudest achievement as a rugby player? The proudest achievement in one thing was in one thing on the sporting thing was you know winning the championship, winning the championship for, for Ireland. But the actual proudest was the Peace International of 1996. 
that, you know, people used to say about the Irish rugby team, it's all great. You all come from all over the Ireland, north and south, and you never talk about the situation, the troubles as it was in Northern Ireland or the situation. I remember thinking that's fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. Because if you got to know somebody as a teammate that you depend on, um, and you get to know them, and then you can't sit down and say, let me understand what's going on. Let's understand people from your background and tradition of unionist. So we did, particularly with a friend of mine, Trevor Ringland, who was an, was an Irish international lion. We talked about the North and the situation. And in 1996, the IRA blew up Canary Wharf and people all around were protesting about this, getting out and saying, this is not in our name. I had this idea, it was a year after South Africa had won the Rugby World Cup and the images of President Mandela had gone around the world uh, wearing the Springbok jersey. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, final. So I called Trevor and I said, well, let's get the, let's bring, let's have a, a peace international. We bring the best players of, in the world to Dublin um, as, and we'll fill Lansdowne Road as a statement of IRA and all terrorist violence. And so we contacted Francois Pinar. You know, the key was getting one of the big South Africans. And he said, I'm in it. I'm in it. I don't want a penny for it. And the whole thing took off. And some of the, the barbarians, which was this invitation side, brought all the best players in the world to Dublin. And the guests of honour in the, in the, in the uh, uh, in the stadium, where four children, four children whose lives have been impacted by by terrorism, a little boy called Darren Baird who lost his parents and his sister in the bombing of the Shankill Road in Belfast, a little boy called Tommy Mullen whose brother was killed in a reprisal attack a week later, a little boy called Gareth Bowlesworth whose best friend was killed in an IRA bomb in Warrington, uh, and at the end of this match, and it was and the people went to this game who'd never been at a rugby game before sort of filled the stadium and at the end of the match the barbarians this visiting team did a lap of honor just slowly around the ground and the whole crowd rose not just because they'd seen a great rugby match because the result didn't matter but the whole crowd rose and applauded them because they had lent their credibility their names their stature in world rugby to those who are working for peace along this island and it was an amazing, and I've had some great days in that stadium, the now Aviva Stadium, but nothing actually sort of came close you know, to that. And it just showed how sport can sometimes be something much bigger than sport uh, and actually connect with people in a way that was, that was different. And it was such a wonderful atmosphere and brought people together from all parts of this island, no matter what their background, no matter what their constitutional preference was or their religious affiliations or whatever it just brought people at the at their at their best so i think in a sense that was my that was my proudest moment um you know as a as a rugby player i can still feel the sort of back of my neck as i sort of saw these great figures going around lansdowne road and the, the Viva stadium and you know just the crowd just stood and applauded and applauded it was just it was just fantastic that's an incredible achievement you made an interesting point there about how sport can transcend sport itself and help impact major causes we care about across society. When did you realize that? When did you realize that, that as a rugby player, you actually have a, a position and you have the, the power to implement some sort of changes that you'd like to see across the world? Yeah, well, it even started before that. It was when I was in Trinity at the time, and it still is there, Goal, a wonderful sports journalist called John O'Shea set up Goal, which is the third world charity. Uh, and he was just passionate about doing stuff. And he, he, because he was a sports journalist, invited, you know, sports people to events. And his tennis was his big event. And he said, 
the, the you know you got some of the great big tennis stars like Pat Cash and Mats Philander and John McEnroe of that of that era to come to events and he he set up gold which has done amazing work all around the third world um, and based anchored around anchored around sport anchored around sporting events uh, and I when I was in Trinity I set up goal in Trinity and then when I went to because I, I thought this was fantastic I thought this was just brilliant so I, I joined the committee of goal and got involved set it up in Trinity and then when I went to live in the UK set up a branch of goal in 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 there and it was it was fantastic it was just as you say um you know again an example of when sometimes sport is just bigger than sport and John was very friendly with Bob Geldorf who did Live Aid, Band Aid, and you know, again, it was just something in that in that case that was music that brought people together. Um, but John used the sport was hit was his thing, and you now still have on Christmas Day you have gold miles all around the country where people come and with their with their families and they they, they you know they run and they don't donate money to the to the to, to the third world. And again, it's a again a very powerful example of how sport can 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 do so much more. Art than than, uh, than just the sport itself. How did you find playing with people from Northern Ireland? Because the the majority of them, mm. uh, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to try strike yeah. up a us versus them type comparison and and, mm. and make it said to be totally different. But the reality is, most rugby players from Northern Ireland would identify as being British. Yet yeah. there's this weird thing where they really want to beat England more than anyone else when they play for Ireland. Yeah. Well. What was that like playing with them and what insight did you get into their mentality of potentially their patriotism towards Ireland or their possible allegiances towards the United Kingdom? Yeah, well, there's the, that was the interesting thing about sitting down and talking because when you had a teammate and, and you know, like Trevor or something, I, you just there was no holds barred, you know, just asking the questions. And, you know, he would say, I'm like the great Ulster poet, John Hewitt said, I'm, I'm an Ulsterman of this place. And secondly, I'm, 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 Irish of this island, and thirdly, I'm British, uh, and in a fourth, in a vague sense, I'm, I'm I'm European. And anyone anyone who takes some of that out is not describing me. And so, you know, people like Trevor are very proud of their unionist and British, but very proud of their sort of playing for Ireland as well. And I, I came to, um, you know, respect that. And it was, you know, it's it, it's a big lesson for. You know, life today. This is much bigger than this. Is much an example, much bigger than sport. We we still haven't got you know true peace and reconciliation in Northern Ireland. We haven't got true reconciliation right across this island. Um, we that's what we need to be focus need to be focusing on. And sport is a great uh, example of 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 how this of, of how this happens. And it can also show that you know the misunderstandings because I got to understand from talking to Trevor and to, uh, going up to unionist because most of the role the rugby was played by people of unionist background and just talking and asking them listening to them about what they're and so I could come from an Irish as a soft nationalist background um, and I just learned so much and I learned so much what us were sort of had in common and there's a wonderful on the sport and I think it's something in the I was lucky to go north so often through the rugby that a lot of people in the in the south don't go north and don't understand what is really important to them um, and BT Sport did a wonderful documentary a while ago, um, Craig Doyle about the and uh, Brian O'Driscoll um, about uh, about sport. And there was a wonderful scene where he and Rory Best, two teammates, two Irish captains, were together. Rory had just won an award. I can't remember if it was an MBE or an OBE, but it was it was it was it was something. And Brian was uh, 
saying, Rory, I, I just don't understand. You're Irish and you're British at the same time. Now, Brian wasn't trying to be rude or in any way dismissive, but he just he just put it out there. And Rory said, yeah, that's that's what I am. I'm, I am Irish and I am British. And I think that's, again, how our sport has a wider lesson you know, to us is that what we need to do on this island is get to the state. Because sport brought people together, again, without threatening anybody's identity, anybody's religion, anybody's nationality. And that's the stage where we need to get to. I mean, people are now talking about border polls, about Irish unity, because it's in the Good Friday Agreement. I don't want to get into too much detail about this. But in the first and second paragraph of the Good Friday Agreement, it says we need to reach true recon recon you know, reconciliation um, and, 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 and understanding, tolerance and reconciliation. And so that's the sort of the aim. It's still the unfinished business of the Good Friday Agreement um, is that, that you would have, no matter what your you know, your own identity is, it's a completely legitimate aspiration for United Ireland. It's completely legitimate to stay within the United Kingdom. But you, what you need to say is the tolerance and reconciliation to understand that, to have the generosity of spirit to, to understand that. And that, that's where we need to get to on this island. And sport is so good because that actually does bring people together. It brings together all the spectators, it brings together all the supporters. Um, people who would, people come from the north of Ireland to rugby internationals who never would have never come otherwise. People come from the south to games and sport, GAA or whatever, all the sports who, who, would, who, are, who ordinarily would not go to the other places and have that kind of interaction that we were privileged, you know, to have. And, and that's where, you know, we as an island um, need to get to. And we're, we're lucky that we have things that actually can help us in that way and sport is, is there's nothing bigger than sport in, in, in the ability to do that. And because there's so many instances where there is kind of cross-border playing or cross-border support or cross-border um, whatever. And uh, it's, it's that, 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 that kind of spirit that's created out of that is the kind of spirit that we have to be, create as an island. Um, do you think the Irish football team will ever have the entire Ireland playing under one team? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I Why has so. the rugby team been able to achieve that, but the football team hasn't? Because I think when when there was the kind of the partition of Ireland, um, or when the setting up of the Northern Ireland state, um, the rugby just kind of continued as 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 it was, and it kind of was you know went over this little in in there like a speed bump or whatever. But I don't mean to be facetious about it, but it kind of the rugby just kind of hung together in that. I'm not so I'm not so aware of the uh, um, you know exactly what happened you know in, in the football but it was just people decided let's just keep it together and we just we don't worry if it's if it's if it's uh um you know it doesn't affect us we can still you know go to clubs in in Armagh as well as Cork or Kerry or, or whatever it's, it doesn't you know it doesn't matter but it's it's a it's a it's 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 a it's a it's a big prize I mean if the spirit of sport could be taken out of there and you know, go much wider, you, you, you'd have a better, you'd have a much better impact. It's one of the reasons, I mean, I'm running for the, the Shannad, you know, on the Trinity College seats. And part of the, part of the, in, part of the interest in doing that is, is the North-South. And I've seen how reconciliation, I've seen how tolerance can come, but I've seen how much is still a huge gap is yet to be done. And so therefore, trying to put yourself out there to spend a lot of time doing, working on that. Do you think we will ever have a United Ireland? Um, 
I, I don't know. It's, um, uh, um, it's a completely legitimate aspiration. I think what needs to happen first is create the conditions in which it could, it could actually it could happen. And ironically, it's the same set of conditions that would make a, a Northern Ireland in the rest of the United Kingdom work. And what, what I mean by that is with making a Northern Ireland work, getting true tolerance, reconciliation, will actually create, the, is necessary before you could ever have a United Ireland. And if you don't have that, it's just going to be dangerous to try and push it through with these numbers, just because one is a slight majority or, or, or whatever. Um, and yet, and similarly, a Northern Ireland that was more at peace with itself would get a much better reaction from the rest of the United Kingdom, because the rest of the United Kingdom is, is kind of, you know, with respects Northern Ireland, but at time to time, people will come and say, like George Osborne, from politician, we're talking about Scottish referendum. Oh, it's Scotland. And then it's about Northern Ireland. And say, oh, Northern Ireland is on its way out um, of the Union. What about Scotland? Scotland is what we have to focus on. And if you're a unionist, you say, hang on, what did you just say? What did you just say? And it was actually the way that it was kind of said. And so what's what's my point there? I think that, that, that if I'm a unionist in, in Northern Ireland, proclaiming my how much I want to be part of the United Kingdom, well then maybe build a greater impression of, of what's going on in Northern Ireland, you know, in the rest of the in the rest of the in the rest of the United Kingdom. So it's not to dodge the question. I mean, it's, if it's there, there are various factors that could push towards a United Ireland. There are others that we could push apart. But I think the key thing is the key thing, and this is where the great late Seamus Mallon was so good. He still talked about creating the conditions. He was he wanted to be United Ireland. But he only, only if you created the conditions in which it could work, that there was this tolerance, that there was this reconciliation, there was this generosity of spirit. And so a lot of the people from the South said, yeah, I want to United Ireland, but I'm not going to pay for it. So what about things like, oh, you know, rejoining the Commonwealth, the NHS, honouring the Psalm, the, the Storm Parliament at Stormont, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you, you see the arguments every year when Ireland's call uh, is set out as the, as the anthem. And you get people sort of giving out, saying, oh, it should be our own Naveen. Now, if you're, having, if you're having problems with Ireland's call, wait till you get onto some of the really difficult issues. And then people, <laughs> and then people say, oh, well, Ireland's call, it's how does the team be motivated after that? And you could say, well, hang on, who are the two greatest rugby sides in the world? South Africa and New Zealand. What's my point? They both explicitly changed their anthems to make them more inclusive. And nobody was kind of saying that it's, uh, you know, that was a big, that was a big, that was a big, a big loss. So I think when people have, you know, especially in the Republic, talk about their legitimate aspiration for a United Ireland, but have the generosity of spirit to say, well, how are we going to make it more British? How are we going to reflect the Britishness of our northern neighbours? If you're, if you're really genuine, how, how is that going to be done? And that's the sort of the key, that's the key, you, you know, issue. Um, there, whereas if I just say, oh, well, let me get 50% plus half a percent in terms of population, that's a dangerous way to go. And I think the focus for whether you want to United Ireland or whether you want to Northern Ireland, part of the UK, making it work, achieving tolerance and reconciliation is an essential prerequisite for either of those two very disparate, different aspirations. And that's the sort of some of the stuff that I kind of learned through sport and learned through talking to you know, people across the north, from the nationalist from, you know, background as well, as we want United Ireland. Um, that's where I think our, our, our focus would be. And I think that's what's great where sport can help us create some of the conditions 
know, for that. Last yeah. question I want to ask you before we get on to your run for the Trinity Shannon is meeting Nelson Mandela. What was he like as a, uh, as a character, as a person? And, and how did that come about? It was, it was fantastic. How it came about was that um, in 1981, in my first season for Ireland, Ireland went to South Africa at the end of the, the year, and it was very divisive uh, because Ireland, South Africa was the apartheid regime. It was still very much in, in play, and a lot of black leaders were saying, don't come. So I decided not to go with a few other players, and we were when Nelson Mandela came on a visit to, to Ireland a few years later. Um, we were invited to go and meet Sorry, him. so it was just a select few of the Irish players that decided not to go. The team travelled, but you and a few decided not to. Yeah, yeah. But th that uh, must have been a pretty difficult decision to make because even though you, your values are very much aligned with not going, uh, as an athlete and as a as a proud Irish rugby player, you probably desperately wanted to play in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, just in, if it was pure rugby, um, I'd love to have gone. <laughs> if it was pure rugby, I didn't want to give someone else a shot of my position yeah. um, by, by not being there. But it was, you know, it was just, it always seemed to me it was more than rugby. And a lot of the black, the black leaders were just saying, please don't come. Uh, you know, I mean, South, South Africans at the time didn't really care if they were isolated on the international financial markets, but they did care about watching the Springboks at Loftus Versfeld. Uh, and so I, I just decided, it would, I just felt the more I heard, um, probably the, the, the more uh, I, I was uncomfortable and decided not to go. And the IRFU was, was very, everybody was, you know, respected. I went on and played for seven years for Ireland after that. Um, but meeting Nelson Mandela was, 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 was phenomenal. Uh, and I remember a great story going back to the Peace International that Francois Pinar, the captain of South Africa, you know, told me. He said they were about to go out to play in New Zealand in the World Cup final. Uh, and they were the massive underdogs. New Zealand had this Jonah Lomu, this phenomenal runner. And there was a knock on the door and the manager of the South African team came over and the South African team were huddled in a group just about to go on to the pitch. And uh, the manager of the team came over, Francois Francois. He said, don't interrupt us, don't interrupt us, but I have to, I have to. President, President Mandela wants to come into the dressing room. Francis said, oh, no, we're about to go out to play the All Blacks. I mean, please, with all due respect, you know, we just, we was concentration. He said, no, Francois, we have to do it. And so they'd stopped and the door opened and France, and the, President Mandela came in wearing a Springbok jersey. They didn't know he was going to do that. And this is for, this is a man who spent so much of his life in captivity. The Springbok jersey for so long had been a symbol of apartheid. And Francois said, he told me afterwards, we said, when we saw him come in with the Springbok jersey and the cap, we just stopped. We just, we just stopped and just everybody looked at him. And he said, I knew then we're not going to lose that match today. And again, it was one of those amazing times when sometimes, rare times, sport is so much bigger than sport. And this was, this was, this was, one, of the, uh, this was one of the great examples of that. It's an amazing insight, I think, into just forgiveness like yeah you know, anything you go through in life it's probably not going to be as bad as being unjustly being put in prison for what was it the guts of 20 years and oh, the fact that yeah. he could then look beyond that and look yeah. to a greater cause and say for the sake of my country and for the sake of the African people I'm going to stick my hand out and do everything I can to unite this country yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit, when you say something, say, well, who's the greatest person you've ever met and we're lucky to meet? And I would just have to say it was just such a privilege. My, my 
luckiest person to meet was was, was Nelson Mandela, and uh, he's was uh, lived up, you know, lived up to lived up to expectations. But I didn't know that Francois story at the time, but it's it just kind of added 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 to the my respect for the, for the man. It's extraordinary. Yeah, that's an incredible story. Okay, you're now running for the Trinity Shannon. And one of the you know one of the reasons, apart from the North South, why I was running is that I'm become very involved in uh, an organization called the Trinity Center for People with Intellectual Disabilities. And this was set up as a legacy of the Special Olympics where people with intellectual disabilities mostly never went to college. Less than 1% went to college. Um, there's still less than 6% get full-time employment. And the Trinity Center takes students in, does a two-year course, and then we try and place them with Irish businesses. And we've gone from four partners to 40 partners of many of Ireland's leading companies. And it's phenomenal transforms the lives of the students, transforms the lives of the families. It's had a fantastic impact for, uh, for companies that have got behind it. And we've got real momentum, even through the, even through the uh, uh, pandemic, other co companies have been coming on board. And our ambition is to take it beyond Trinity to lots of different other universities. So I know you have lots of people from different universities uh, listening, listening in. We'd be happy to come and share the, the, the sort of the, the how, how, how we've done it um we'd have to prepare how to how we've got the businesses in because having seen it work and seen it be so transformational i'll give you a story it's often these things are better in, in stories as well tomas murphy and tomas is a great friend he won't mind me saying this most before he went on the course wouldn't go out of the house um and he then is in, does the course he's invited to speak on behalf of trinity in washington he goes to washington he's at an event with the ireland funds which i was involved in um which is a great organization that does so many work helps so many projects in Ireland. And he meets Enda Kenny, the then Taoiseach. And I'm always standing next to Sheila, his mother, who's looking at her son, comparing notes with the Taoiseach about Washington. Tomorrow speaking at the conference, the Taoiseach's being at the White House with President Obama. I thought she was gonna just elevate with sort of pride. Uh, and there's so many kind of stories like that. Um, and so we're very ambitious about that. And I, so what, to answer your question, I felt if I was in the Shannon, I mean, I've been able to help to informally build up those business partners to from four to 40. But if I was actually in a position of uh, like the Shannon, you'd be able to do so much more because you'd have a have a national profile. So the things that are really my two passions have been North, South and Northern Ireland, for the reasons I've discussed with you. But this Trinity Centre for People with Intellectual Disabilities is really a jewel and uh, we just got to take it right around the country and there's, there's too few very low institutions who have got a um, you, you know a, a centre now it wasn't they haven't made they haven't made a conscious decision not to have one it was lucky that just in Trinity there was the coming together of a few people who you know put a structure in place and we've been able to build on build on that structure but it's now been internationally recognised as kind of world leading best in class and it's just when you see the impact on, on, you know, on the students and on their families that, uh, you know, Finn or Hugo isn't going to be sitting in the corner of the room with Game Boy. They're going to be sitting at the dinner table talking about what they've done, uh, you know, during that day. And it's, it, it, it's, it's fantastic. So um, thanks for the opportunity even to, to mention it because it's, we're very ambitious about what we want to do with this. No, it, it, it sounds incredible. And, and congratulations on the progress you've made with it so far. Is there anything else that you're running on that you'd like to achieve if you did get elected into the Shannon? The two things really are most, mostly, you know, would be Northern Ireland, North-South relations, British-Irish relations. I've been 
you know, involved in British-Irish relations for a long time as well. That's a sort of a subset of a wider thing. Second is the is the Trinity um, and then the intellectual disabilities. And then the third, I suppose, is, you know, from the background of worked in business for a number of long, long number of years to be a, you know, a voice in the Shannon around, um, you know, business and the, and the economy and the challenges that we're going to have coming out of, uh, you know, COVID and making a, a more sustainable economy. That's going to be their challenge for the for the foreseeable future, the most important challenge that we we'll face, not just as a country, but as a planet. Um, but I would, I would say those three were the sort of the motivating factors that maybe say, well, look, get out and give it a shot. It's, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. But that, that, that's really what's been my motivation. One question we always ask our guests is the best or most influential book they've ever read. The best or most influential book. Or, or most influential. So if some person might just say, oh, well, I loved Harry Potter. It didn't influence me, but I just loved uh, It's a great, great book of fiction. Whereas others might say, I don't know, the hard thing about, about hard things always gets mentioned or there might be some of the nonfiction business book that had a big impact on them. Is there any one book that you can pick out that you, that you would recommend everybody to read? Yeah, well, it might sound, my last year in Trinity, I did a course under uh, David Norris on Anglo-Irish literature. And David Norris and the great late Brendan Kennelly, who's a wonderful poet there, was fantastic. And they, they, but David Norris taught about James Joyce and Ulysses. And Ulysses was this you know big daunting book that a lot of people never read. Because it's so, <laughs> it's so I, I think everybody's attempted to read it, but nobody's read it. David, David made it come alive. Uh, and it was just it was fantastic. And he you know, used to act out some of the parts of it and just made this come alive. And so what was so fantastic was this great book, which was based in your home city um, and, you know, it'd been explored it'd been, and teach, taught in, you know, in, in a fantastic way. And I know it sounds incredibly pretentious. You know, you're kind of saying, what is your favorite book? Oh, it's Ulysses. But I, it really... I, it was great. It was great fun and getting to understand Leopold Bloom and all the world that he he, he lived in, who's, who's the main is the main character. But it really was the sort of the the, the, the tribute to David Norris, who who made the whole thing came come alive. And so you keep keep it even to this day and listen to it. And I've got a recording of you know of it, and it's 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 just fantastic. So again, if I Please excuse me. I don't want to sound incredibly pretentious, but it's just <laughs> as living living in living in Dublin, going for a swimming in the forty foot uh, weekends, which is near where I, where I live, it's it's probably uh, it's probably worth a mention anyway. No, it's fantastic. Um, not only I think you're probably the first guest, definitely the first guest that's ever said Ulysses, and probably the first guest I've ever interviewed. Last one listen to it. Listen to it. I, I might have read it once, but listen to it about you know four or five times. And when when it was it was recorded on the 1982, I remember being in Trinity, which was the centenary of the birth of James Joyce. It was, it was, or he did a, a thing. It's now, it's now fully, now fully available. But I remember at the time having a tape recorder and running in and out during the day, putting a new tape in because the thing was many, many hours. Yeah. But, uh, any, anyway, so that's, that's been a lot of, that's been a lot of fun anyway. Is there any bit of advice that stood out that you were given during your rugby career or from all the people you've met? I think just, you know, it's the thing one thing again and it may sound you know pretentious or something but oh my late father just always and he didn't really say this he just did it he just anybody who helped him in any way and anybody who was in a in a role that somebody might say might be an inferior which he never thought about um in that was just he was he was doubly friendly to or doubly courteous if it was somebody 
um, serving a serving a meal or cleaning cleaning a house. Or I always remember he had a, he had a stroke and he was he I couldn't drive with difficulty. But the East Link, the people at the East Link Bridge in Dublin, were always very friendly and helpful to him because it would take took much took, took much time. And he wrote to the he wrote to the person in charge, but I and who I met at once, you know, as, as a as a freak and said how they much they enjoyed, you know, getting that acknowledged, which I isn't a big sort it's a big thing for me because he was my father. And but I think it was just always a uh, a really good sort of guide that he lived by rather than rather than spoke that sort of rubbed off. And I constantly sort of make turn safe to my son uh, James uh, when he gets when he gets into a situation that's new that 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 that, that kind of advice is relevant. Our friend Kingsley always speaks about in networking, the best networkers are the ones that just give to their network as opposed to try and take from it. And it sounds like your father sort of subconsciously live, live by that rule by just yeah. giving more than, than, than what he took. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Hugo, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on. I've really enjoyed this chat. I've enjoyed it as well. Thanks. Thank, thanks very much.